Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. This is episode 1000, my interview with Stephen Kotler. We're discussing the art of impossible. Enjoy. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. Great to have you here. Good to be with you. One of my favorite authors out there. You've written some incredible books, mate. Thank you so much. It's nice of you to say. You've, um, you've, got, you've got so much work there. And it, it'd be hard to pick a best one, I imagine. But do you have a particular favor that you've written? Uh, I, I, it depends <laughs> on the day. Depends <laughs> on the day. I, I would pick, on a good day. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I'll pick Rise. Rise of Superman is the most consistent favorite. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're, you're an expert. Think- you're an expert in peak performance, right? I am. Is that how you, like, if you had the elevator pitch for us, how would you, what would you say? That, that's, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fair place to start for sure. Hmm. So we can, why don't we start there? I'm an expert yeah. in peak performance. Expert in peak performance. What, what, um, what got you into this field, Stephen? Is it, is it a personal journey or is it, um, is it just that's where your research has led you? Uh, it, it, but little of both. Yeah, I uh, started out my career uh, as a journalist, yes. and I, I, in the early 1990s. And journalism is this crazy, great, fun, amazing career where um, essentially you can get paid to be curious. And if you're curious about stuff, you can essentially find out ways to go out and you know learn about it and, and earn a living. And in the early 1990s, I was super curious about two things, and mm-hmm. they don't sound very related. But one, sort of the seeds of peak performance, I was just really obsessed with sort of understanding how humans work and very specifically from a neurobiological perspective. I wasn't super interested in psychology, but in the 1990s, neuroscience sort of moved from like kind of basic parts, uh, parts of the brain to the kind of the very beginning of what, what we called then behavioral neuroscience, how people work basically. And that was, I was obsessed with that. And simultaneously I was obsessed with action and adventure sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, the like. And if you know anything about the 1990s and action sports, it's often referred to as the so-called era of impossible where more impossible feats, that is stuff that had never been done and most people believed could not be done beyond right. human capability um, in every single action sport, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, and the like, these impossible challenges kept falling over and over and over and over again. And I was, I had, you know, I was living in these communities. These were my friends and I had sort of an up close uh, and personal look at this and you know first of all it just demanded explanation nothing like that had ever happened in sports before hmm. where the heck was it coming from what was going on why were these athletes suddenly able to kind of do the impossible and more important i it was these athletes and what i mean is in the communities i was in um most of the people i knew most of my friends didn't have a ton of money they didn't have a ton of education they had very, a lot of them, very difficult childhoods, broken homes, just mm. tough upbringing. And there was a lot of drugs, a lot of risk taking, a lot of alcohol. And normally you put all those things together in a community and people die young or go to jail. 
What yeah. they don't do is reinvent what's possible for the species, and that's what was going on. So right. those two things together just caught my attention, and I was like, I got to know how this is happening, why this is happening, what's going on. And I had I decided that neuroscience was the best tool for the job. So that was sort of where it all started for me. And that, by the way, hasn't changed. That was sort of where I started, and that's sort of where I am 30 years later. Nice. Nice story. The um, the, the the adventure sport, the um, extreme sports, I guess, are you involved in them yourself or is it just that you're journaling and you saw them and you had a passion for them? I have, I've been, I, well, so I'm an old school punk rocker more than anything else. And you can't, <laughs> you got to think action sports. We now think of them as sports. They're in the Olympics and, and, and yeah. whatever it wasn't that way in the, in the late eighties and the early 1990s. So yes, I was deeply involved in these sports, but these were not, they weren't really sports, right? These were more like, punk rock subcultures at the time than actual athletic activities the way we think of them now yeah but yeah i was that's cool i was nowhere near as 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 good as the, as the people who were around me but um i was definitely involved with, I, you punk, know I, I punk rocker hey what's what's your punk rock uh music mate what do you what do you enjoy listening to oh literally everything everything I, you know Misfit, social distortion, rise against, keep, I can go on endlessly. <laughs> when they talk about peak performance, because um, it's a fascinating subject and obviously you're one of the best people to speak to about it, they, they, they look at this, um, you know, this idea of um, not innate talent, I suppose, but something that is, is, is built from intense uh, practice over a long period of time. So, you know, the, the peak golf stars and tennis players who got into it at a very early age and, and just kept practicing at it. And usually, uh, well, not usually, but they've, they've somehow had the the opportunity also to be pushed into that, that training facility, that education, I suppose. Uh, but it sounds like it's a little bit different from what you've come across. Well, you're, you're, so you're, you're making an argument, and it's a smart one, that uh, is essentially Anders Ericsson's big argument. And Anders, mm. before he passed away, he died, um, was, was a friend. And he was brilliant, brilliant psychologist. And he was the one who did the work on so-called deliberate early specialization and deliberate practice. Yeah. And that's where Malcolm Gladwell got his 10,000-hour idea. Yeah. There have been... Um, is that a debunk been, theory, the 10,000-hour well, idea? Well, so um, it's and it, it debunked is, is an open question. There have been two major challenges to Anders' work. Hmm. One from uh, me, mounted and rise as Superman, looking at what I was seeing in the action sport athletes, and another mounted by another friend of mine, a guy named David Epstein, who wrote a book called Range. Which so I looked at the ten thousand hours, the so-called ten thousand hours to mastery, and I said, wait a minute, the athletes I'm studying. Um, at that time are getting there faster. They're going faster. So something else is going on with them. And David Epstein looked at the question of early specialization and wrote a right. great, great book called Range, um, Range that sort of debunked the notion of early specialization. I will, what I will say about Anders' work is I think early specialization has been thoroughly debunked as an idea. And I think David's argument is, is, is really coherent that way. As far as the work I did my so at the center of my work what did I what were these athletes doing what was at the center hmm. of that it's uh before I answer that question let me first say 
after I started looking at this in athletics, I um, I actually broke a ton of bones chasing these athletes around mountains and across the ocean. After, <laughs> yeah. like, not surprisingly, I broke everything you could possibly imagine. And at a certain point, I was literally, I was like, you know what? I'm so damn damaged that if I don't take this question of like, what does it take to do the impossible out of action sports and into other areas, um, I'm probably going to kill myself if I keep trying to chase professionals around mountains. And mm. I, so I did. That's essentially what I did over the next 25 years. I took this question of what does it take to achieve the impossible into business, into science, into technology, into art, et cetera, and essentially wrote books about what I discovered, right? I've written yeah. 14 books at this point, and I think nine of them are about this question one way or another in different fields. Yeah. And it doesn't actually matter where I look. What, what domain you look at, whenever you see humans performing at their very best, you're seeing humans in a state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. Yeah. Sometimes you'll call it being in the zone, runner's high, being unconscious if you play basketball. If you're a stand-up comic, you'll call it the forever box. Terminology is endless. It refers to any of those moments of sort of rapt attention, total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand that everything else just seems to disappear and all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Right. So this right. is this is a state of flow, a consciousness yeah. that is connected to that neuroscience that you talk about. Yes. And so I work on flow. And mm -hmm. one of the things that happens in flow is, and we can talk about why this is, uh, there's a learning and memory is significantly enhanced. One example, uh, the Department of Defense uh, in, in the States teamed up with a woman uh, named Chris Burke, a scientist who runs a, a company called Advanced Brain Monitor, and they do really good EEG work. And they, uh, they put soldiers into flow, and then they train them in target acquisition skills. And they found they would learn target acquisition skills 240 to 500% faster than normal. They repeated those experiments trying to take novice. They did this with handgun shooters, archers, and, uh, and marksmen, uh, riflemen. Uh, and women, I guess. Uh, and they took novices and trained them up to the expert level again in flow 50% less time. So we know why this happens. Um, and so if you mm. can spend significantly more time in flow, there is uh, there's some serious evidence that it will massively accelerate the path to mastery. And Anders and I actually have, have, have talked about it uh, before yeah. we passed. We, go to the same peak performance conference uh, every year at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, and we would have this discussion um, every every year, um, sort of back and forth. And neither of us, I don't think what he discovered is wrong. I think he found a very big piece of it. I think flow is, is an exception um, or is can be used within that system. But like the way he was looking at it, he was also looking at very specific things. Right. He, that was the, that was one of the other things about those 10,000 hours. He was looking at very, very specific kinds yeah. of skills. Right. Yeah, true. So um, it's the, the, those were the challenges. And I, I'm hesitant to say, no, it's wrong because it's not wrong at all. And he was a brilliant scientist. It's just like most things in science. Science tends to be directionally accurate, not always factually accurate. And when the facts are wrong, mm. it's not always it's usually not okay, this is wrong. It's like, well, this is right, but that's not the whole picture. And let's build on that. I guess it's and from one perspective, isn't it? And there's, 
There's two sides to this. I mean, I, I've interviewed a lot of people on this podcast, people that I would consider experts in their fields. And many of them I've found over 90% that become experts over longevity. It seems like that um, it's a long-term game, you know, like sure. and not and a we, short-term you know, game. And I think that's... In the art of impossible, there's this... So I don't know if you're familiar with a, a, a psychologist named Gary Klein. Um, he's one Gary of the world's Klein. leading experts on intuition. And he okay. did a lot of... Later in life, recently, more recently, he's been working with Daniel Kahneman, who's one of the other great experts in intuition. And Gary's really an expert in like real world decision making. How do experts make decisions in the real world, whether they're intuitively or logically or what? And he's got this great, this is also in the art of impossible, um, but he's got a great list of all the stuff that experts know that non-experts don't. And that list doesn't really change for sure and there is sorry got a great list of stuff that experts know that non-experts don't what do you what do you mean there you know like like i'll give you like i can't remember the full list off the top of my head but a couple examples are um experts notice things that don't happen right they if if there are if there's a regular pattern and that pattern has been violated experts tend to notice it non-experts sometimes right right um is one example things a lot of things like that is that because um, their focus is trained on that like if you if you suddenly it, see a nice car that you like you suddenly see them everywhere that uh that's uh no that's that's a you're yeah well because it's kind of like a pattern isn't it like you're, you're watching a pattern out there that's a really hard question neurobiologically the reason this happens with experts is at a very simple level the brain is foundationally a pattern recognition machine. Everything mm. the brain does is pattern recognition. Everything neurons do at an individual level is pattern recognition. Everything networks of neurons do um, when they're working together. It's again, pattern recognition, prediction, yeah. right? That's, that's sort of the job of the brain. Yeah. And it's the associative cortex just links together much more rigorous patterns um, over time, because you keep getting to add more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. I'll give you a, let me give you a simple example um, that's less amorphous from my own life, okay? Yeah. First 10 years of me studying peak performance, I read probably every book on flow that was ever written, textbooks alike. I probably reread those textbooks about every 10 to 12 years or so and have for a while and the first time you focus on the like the meat that's in the center of the paragraphs that's where your attention is yeah once you know that stuff the next pass through i don't pay attention to what's at the center of the paragraphs anymore because i know it already it's the transition between ideas where scientists sort of like work in half-baked thoughts they're not exactly sure of and they sort of tuck them between you don't notice it the first time through because you just don't know enough to even be able to understand what they're talking about. You're still focused on, oh, this thing does this, does this, does this, huh. and you don't have enough knowledge, right? Ten years in, you can go back and see all the other details. And that's a really, you know, I think that's a common experience to anybody working in a technical field where they sort of go back through old, you know, older textbooks and things like that. So that's one of the things I think you start to gain with expertise. Um, 
in weird. Yeah, I guess you've got to have that that curiosity, which obviously you did in this field. You know, you've you've gone back and reread textbooks. A lot of people won't read the same book um, twice, more than once. There's also, there's also so like there's if you have a good understanding of the the neural dynamics of learning, for example, mm. um, you can that which is something that starts to come with expertise you can start to shortcut processes and learn things that right. way. Yeah. And you know, I, that that's that's definitely true as well. Fascinating. So what, what this this flow state, I mean, how long has this research been going on for? Like if you've been obviously doing it for an incredibly long time. Oh my God. That's a, you 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 asked it. this so in the history of psychology and neuroscience flow and the, the idea of an altered state of consciousness enabling peak performance dates all the way back, uh, basically the foundation of psychology. The first experiments really? were run on it in the 1870s, but Nietzsche, the philosopher, who people talk about as the first peak performance philosopher, hmm. um, he wrote about flow. He used, the term itself was, though the Greeks had a slightly different term, the modern term for flow was Rausch. It was a German word coined by Goethe, the, uh, who oh. wanted, who was talking, about it translates to overflowing joy and um william james wrote a little bit about it and 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 so there's there's over 150 years worth of work that went into it the modern era started in the 1970s with a psychologist named mihai chiksetmihai he's often talked about as the godfather of flow psychology Hmm. and he uh he came, came on the scene in the 70s and 80s and discovered well, six things that sort of broke flow research op- wide open. Um, I can well, well more than happy to break down what he learned. Yeah, yeah. But, yep. So the first thing he learned is that he. Let's start where he started. He wanted to know basically what makes life worth living and what what is optimal performance. And he went around the world doing the, what is now still one of the largest studies ever done in, in psychology, talking to tens of thousands of people's huge team that ended up working on this in the end about the times in their life when they felt their best and they performed their best. Yeah. And pretty, and he talked to everybody. I mean, he started with experts. He talked to stockbrokers and neurosurgeons and dancers and rock climbers and so forth. And then he moved on to the, like the general public, Detroit assembly line workers, Chicago meat packers, did, uh, elderly Korean women, Japanese teenage motorcycle gang members, Navajo sheep herders, <laughs> grape farmers. I could go on and on. Yeah, yeah, right? like, yeah. everyone. And everybody he talked to said the same thing. They said, you know, when I'm at my best, when I feel my best and I'm performing my best, I'm in an altered state of consciousness where every decision, every action flows seamlessly, effortlessly, perfectly from the last. Yeah. That's where, so the first thing he did is he gave us the term flow. Because it emerged organically out of his study, and it really—it's a phenomenological term. Phenomenological term, which is a fancy word for yeah. how does the experience make you feel? Right? right? Flow actually feels flowy. It feels flowy because there's massively accelerated, high-speed, near-perfect decision making underneath the surface that is allowing one decision to lead to the next, the next, right. the next. But the experience is very flowy. The next thing he discovered is that these flow states have six core characteristics so Mm -hmm. when a psychologist wants to define flow are you in flow they look for six characteristics and these are measured on a on a likehart scale from like not at all not present at all to 
completely present, like one through seven, right? That's how gotcha. we do it. Yep. Um, and the characteristics are everything from complete concentration and task at hand, the merger of action and awareness, the diminishment of our sense of self, uh, time dilation, which is a fancy way of saying time passes strangely. Sometimes uh, it'll slow down, you'll get a freeze frame effect. Maybe anybody's been in a car crash. More frequently in flow, uh, you just get so sucked into what you're doing that you know five hours go by in like five minutes. So time seems to pass pretty effortlessly. Yeah, time yeah. can pass really quickly then. Um, yeah. And uh, so I mentioned earlier that flow is optimal performance, you know, both mental and physical. We don't experience, like we don't know, oh, I'm performing at an optimum. What we feel like is this incredible sense of control, like you can control things in your environment that you can't normally control. This yeah. could be me as a writer doing things with sentences that I don't normally do, or it could be a basketball player, you know, totally in the zone and suddenly the basketball uh, hoop looks as big as a hula hoop and everything is going in. And finally, the experiences are euphoric. They're autotelic. They're an end in itself. They're joyous and, and, and right. really meaningful. And so those six characteristics are how uh, flow how is defined. Flow. Right. Also how it's measured. So those are the second and the third the thing he figured out is, you know, flow is flowy. It's also definable. It's measurable. The next couple of things that are really important, um, the first is that, uh, flow is the next one is that flow is universal shows up in everyone anywhere provided certain initial conditions are met so humans are all this hardwired for flow biologically it's built in and this is how we're designed to perform at our best it's not even yeah. just humans most mammals can get into flow they share the same kind of neurobiology it's and a lot of mammals use yeah. flow it's conserved across the species um and uh so he discovered that he also figured out that and this is the this is, I think, really important if you're interested in, in kind of working with flow and using it as a peak performance tool to know. So you can be in a state of micro flow or you can be in a state of macro flow. It's a right. spectrum of experience. It's not a singular thing. Micro flow is you sit down to write uh, a quick email at work, right? You get so sucked in, an hour goes by and you didn't notice, right? That's micro flow. It's where all six of those characteristics show up, but they're like dialed down to one or two. Macro flow is the other end of the spectrum and, you know, time slows down and you feel like you're one with everything. And it's really, it's a quasi mystical experience, right? And so all six macro, characteristics come into play there. They come into play all at once. And that's where you'll get time slowing down. And, you know, the more common one is time speeds up, but time slowing down is, is, a, is a rarer experience. You'll get that more often in macro flow. You could also get um, out of body experiences can show up in macro flow. Uh, don't. And I guess a lot of people can relate to this this um, this flow state. They've probably experienced it at some stage where they've felt that elation. Hello, Stephen. I've lost you. Just when we were getting into a bit of a flow. No, I'm sorry about that. Uh, oh, but I can I, I I know where to pick up. So, which was the last thing Chick something I discovered, um, and is that flow is fundamental to happiness, well-being, overall life satisfaction, meaning, and purpose. Hmm. In fact, when positive psychologists now define happiness, there's three levels of happiness. Um, did I lose you again? Yeah, now I'm here. Oh, okay. I got a weird signal. There's three levels of happiness, and uh, flow is actually sort of baked into the definition of the upper two tiers of, of, of levels of happiness achieved by humans. Hmm. So 
you know, in a, in a, in a world where we're having, you know, sort of mental health crises, right. And left. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, flows really uh, important as a sort of anecdote, uh, anecdote for that. As a what, what are the three it. levels of happiness? So uh, there's the level one is just happiness. How do you yep. feel right here, right now? Right. And the interesting thing about this level is there's not a whole lot you can do to feel better. Dan Harris was kind of right. You can get about 10% happier. And that's about it. And and we know how to do that, right? Like, you know, everybody mindfulness practices, gratitude, you know, regular de-stressing, access to nature, that sort of stuff. Um, we'll, we'll can move that needle, but uh, you can't do a whole lot with it because of emotional set points. Yeah. The next level up is uh, what's known as engagement or enjoyment. This is literally defined as a high flow lifestyle. So this could be anything. You could have a job that produces a lot of flow and a lot, you know, a lot of different kinds of jobs. Any job will yeah. produce flow. It's really about how you approach the job, but you can have a high flow job or, you know, I live in Tahoe and there's a lot of people who are around me who kind of work construction all summer so they can ski all winter. They have a high flow lifestyle. They're not getting flow from what they do for a living. They're getting it from the recreation. And right. finally, the best we can feel on the planet is purpose. And purpose is literally where you take the thing that's producing the most flow in your life and then you couple it to a cause greater than yourself. And right. that's how you, that's really sort of the formula for purpose. And that's the best we get to feel on the planet. So yeah. those are the, those are the three levels that, that we now talk about when we talk about like levels of happiness achieved by humans. I love that. Yeah. This, um, you talk about, um, I guess the, when you're in a flow state, the dilation, is it of self or this, this, Diminishment of diminishment self. sense of like a, a fading sense of self is it? What has that so, got to do with ego? Like, is that is that coupled with ego? Is it just because you you yeah, stop? So let, let, let's start with why that happens, and then then work backwards yeah, to okay. what we get. So, a lot of different things happen in the brain in flow, but one of the one of the bigger changes is what's known technically as transient hypofrontality. That's the temporary. Mm deactivation of the prefrontal cortex. So the part of your brain that's right behind your forehead basically yeah. turns off in flow. And it is predominantly an efficiency exchange. The brain is an energy hog. It uses a tremendous amount of our energy even at rest. So it's always trying to conserve energy. In flow, we need a ton of energy for focus. With Focus is really, really intense on the task at hand. Yeah. So the brain will, because it has a fixed energy budget, it will shut down non-critical structures gotcha. and repurpose that energy for attention. Hmm. A lot of the structures that get shut down are in the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex What is the purpose of the prefrontal cortex? So it does a lot of important stuff under normal conditions. Everything from logical long-term decision-making will be there. Your sense of morality, your sense of willpower, uh, long-term decision-making, complex, logical uh, problem-solving, all that stuff's prefrontal cortex. Yeah. Prefrontal cortex also creates your sense of self. Your sense of self is created by basically a bunch of different structures in the prefrontal cortex. It's a network and some other parts of the brain. But as the prefrontal cortex shuts down, this entire network collapses and we lose our sense of self. We lose our sense 
of ego. Most importantly, the voice in our head, that nagging always on inner critic gets really, really quiet. Yeah, nice. So that happens in flow. This is, and this of course has a huge impact on performance when our, our sense of self sort of disappears. Well, it, 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 it builds up that confidence, doesn't it? Because if you don't have that sense of self, that voice that doubts, then you're more likely to just go for it. Creativity goes through the roof, right? Oh. This is one of the reasons creativity goes so much in, up and flow for exactly what you just said. You're no longer doubting all those neat ideas you have. So creativity is massively amplified. Mm. Risk-taking is also significantly amplified in flow for, for similar reasons. Yeah. The sense. same thing, by the way, happens to our sense of time. Time's a calculation performed by a bunch of different structures in the prefrontal cortex. And as parts of it go down, you know, it's a network effect again, and the whole network collapses, and we lose the ability to separate past from present from future. So we're plunged into what researchers talk about as the deep now, the elongated present, the eternal moment, right? That's what happens. It's, it's past, present, and future collapsing. And once again, huge impact on performance because most of our anxieties, most of our fears – and fear has a huge negative impact on performance, as I'm sure you know, Yeah, are rarely present tense. They're usually scary things that happen in the past that we want to avoid in the present, or yeah. they're scary things that might happen in the future. If I remove past and future from the equation, there our stress hormones actually get flushed out of our system, and they get replaced by a bunch of positive, feel-good, mm. performance-enhancing chemicals. So... Um, the, the, the time dilation and the vanishing of self, besides just being sort of characteristics, weird things that happen in flow, they have huge impacts on performance. The, the prefrontal cortex must play a purpose in our lives, right? Oh, a huge purpose in our lives and, it, and, it, and super, super critical. You have to understand that in flow, flow is what happens when we learn a bunch of skills consciously. Prefrontal cortex is really active. We're like thinking about it. We're taking it apart. We're trying to figure it out. Yeah. We're learning it consciously. Mm. Flow is what happens once we can perform it unconsciously. Right. Perfect. That's why, yeah. Right. Yeah. Where we don't have to. It's, it's in a sense, like the way I always like to explain it is think about swinging a bat at a, at a baseball. There are about 11 different individual skills that are required to do that. You have to keep your eye on the ball. You have to step through the pitch. You have to follow through with your swing. You have mm. to shift your hips. You have to play, et cetera, et cetera. All those skills are usually onboarded individually. You know what I mean? Like you'll learn them in clusters, but some of them you just gotta like, just practice one at a time. Flow is what happens when you get all 11 of those individual skills. They've all sort of been learned. Now they come together. And something you're just hitting home run after home run after home run unconsciously, automatically, that's flow. So this flow state, is it something that we, we want to strive for more often? And is that possible? So it's significantly possible. And you don't, you don't get to live in a flow state. It's not like that's not the goal. It, first of all, it's biologically impossible. Flow is a four-stage cycle. And you have to move through the entire cycle before you can go back into flow. So there's no, you don't live in flow. That's a, that's not possible, but you absolutely can maximize flow. So you, I think your, your question is two parts and let me just answer each of them individually. The first is Please. what is flow good for? And we talk about optimal performance, right? One of the things yeah. you're asking is how, optimal, what the hell are you talking about? What goes up? Right. So we talked earlier about uh, one aspect, how learning is significantly amplified. That's only one thing we see 
motivation, productivity, and grit significantly right. amplified. In some studies uh, on productivity, 500% above baseline. Right. Creativity and innovation, for reasons we talked about earlier as well, will spike 400 to 700%. We talked about how meaning, purpose, well-being, life satisfaction also spikes. There's a shared version of flow, right? There's individuals in flow, me in a flow state, or you in a flow state, mm -hmm. or there's group flow, mm -hmm. right? Which is a team performing at their best. And and so there's you see collaborative skills go through the roof. Collaboration, cooperation, communication are also significantly amplified. Empathy goes up in flow. Ecological awareness, which is the ability to see and perceive the natural world. And then on the physical side, strength, stamina, endurance all go up. And uh, our sensitivity to pain, uh, uh, well, decreases. So we yeah. don't feel as much pain and flow, right? So um, it's got a huge impact both cognitively and, uh, and physically. And we understand why, like, you know, why does one state of consciousness amplify all this stuff? We've, we've sort of figured that out also. Um, and so, you know, and, and nobody, you can't perform at your best without flow. And, you know, as that smorgasbord of things that are amplified that I just walked through, you can imagine no matter what you're doing, right? Try to think of something where you don't need more motivation, productivity. You can't because mm. um, those are basically the foundational principles of peak performance. Yep. And flow as, as peak performance amplifies all of them, basically. Look um, it. So good for everybody. And the second half of your question is, can we have more of it? Yes. This yeah. is, uh, this is, you know, I, uh, I, I run an organization called the Flow Research Collective, and, mm. and we're a research and training organization. On the research side, um, we study the neurobiology of peak human performance, so what's going on in the brain and the body when we're performing at our best. We do this in conjunction with people, at scientists at USC and Stanford and, and Imperial College in London and so forth. Um, and then we have a training side, and we train everybody from – professional athletes and members of the U.S. Special Forces to C-suite executives at most of the Fortune 500 companies, whole companies as well, to, you know, individuals, you know, soccer moms in Indiana, insurance brokers in London and coders in Delhi, global. And so over a thousand people a month. And I mention all this because you asked, you know, yeah. can I have more flow? Right. Yeah. We train about a thousand people a month and we measure flow using the standard same instrument that everybody else measures flow with. And we see on average a 70 to 80% boost in flow. So yeah, well. it is incredibly trainable. And the reason is this, we are, we have a, you know, we, we all we've done is we work backwards from the neurobiology. It turns yeah. out flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 22 that have been discovered. There's probably yes. way more, but we have a, a, a firm grasp on 22 of them. Well. Um, Oh, actually, I just saw an article yesterday, maybe 23. I did. There's a new study. Out so what flow states have one. triggers, you say, that lead to more flow states? Yeah. So like, think about it this way. Flow follows focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now on the task at hand. Right. That's what all these triggers do. They drive attention into the present moment. They right. do it a bunch of different ways. Some of them will push a neurochemical called dopamine into our system. Some will push a neurochemical called norepinephrine into our system. Both of those chemicals are significant. Norepinephrine, what's that? I, I'd hear a lot about dopamine, but... Is, hmm. So, so you, you know what adrenaline is, right? Right, yeah. Okay. In the brain, 
We don't have adrenaline. We have noradrenaline or norepinephrine, same thing. So oh, okay. epinephrine or adrenaline in the body, same word. In the brain, it's noradrenaline and norepinephrine. That's just the brain version of adrenaline. That's norepinephrine. Right. Um, Say that word so, three times fast. Um, I'll give you an example. How do you know you've got norepinephrine in your system? You can. It feels twitchy, first of all. Feel excitement is norepinephrine. Curiosity is norepinephrine. Anxiety is norepinephrine-based. All right. of those sensations have a, a And you know what's really norepinephrine-based is vigilance. So, And this could be good or bad, right? Romantic love, when you fall in love, norepinephrine is one of the big chemicals that cocktail for that. And, and when you can't stop thinking about the person you're falling in love with, yeah. that's norepinephrine. The crush. Then when you're scared. Obsession. Right? When you, yeah, a crush, an obsession, also a fear. Right. If you've got like a pathological terror or a phobia, you can't stop thinking about the thing that scares you. Right. Um, well, that's interesting, that's isn't it? Because you talk about it being anxious. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So here's a here's a weird one. But everybody, this is remember at the start mm. of covid where some, when we didn't know what was causing it exactly and was it contagious and could you touch surfaces and suddenly every person you looked at and every surface was a threat. Yeah. There was like that one month period. That's all norepinephrine. That's all norepinephrine. Well, that explains um, a lot because when you, when you feel that anxiety or that fear and often it's linked to, Hey, maybe this is something that I should move towards, or maybe this is something that actually is, is beneficial to me. That's exactly right. Norepinephrine and dopamine are the, chemicals that govern approach and avoid which are the two basic right. behaviors right in i mean there's by the way which is all about human survival isn't it yeah. and, and glutamate and there's a bunch <clears> of other things but like from a how we, we experience norepinephrine and dopamine they often talk about these chemicals as the molecules of emotion so yeah. you know dopamine is is also excitement and joy and you know, curiosity, desire to make meaning out of your world. When your cell phone buzzes in your pocket, you've got a message, and you're like, "Oh my God, I I want to check that. I'm curious." That's dopamine. That's <laughs> yeah. doing that. When you get drunk and you start to feel really happy, that's dopamine. Um, and again, that it drives attention. And now the other thing the triggers will do is uh, the lower cognitive load. Cognitive load is all the crap you're trying to pay attention to at any one time. And if I uh -huh. lower cognitive load, I liberate a bunch of energy. Right. Yes, and and the brain sense. will automatically repurpose it to pay attention to whatever you're doing. So that's what the triggers do. That's how they work. And, you know, some of that, they're, they're really, you know, they're things like novelty is a flow trigger, complexity, unpredictability, risk. These mm. all produce dopamine and, and, and norepinephrine. Pattern recognition, when we link ideas together, um, that's why there's a, you know, reading is a very common producer of flow. And one of the reasons is you're reading a book and, oh, this idea linked with that idea, linked with that idea, linked with that idea. And every time that happens, you get a little bit of dopamine. And yeah. we all know this experience. Like you've done a crossword puzzle. You get an answer right. You feel that little rush of pleasure. That's dopamine. Yeah. So it's, it's right. It's this it's the same thing. It showed right. And so that will drive us into flow. There's a whole bunch of, you know, other things that do, you know, other other stuff. But. You know, those are just examples. So how those triggers work, how to utilize them for our benefit, um, that's how you amplify flow. This, and that's, by the this, way... This state really of flow is very exciting. It's, it's you know, you, you've talked me into it, Stephen. Uh, what, I know you've got some um, radical ideas in your books, but can you share with us a few simple things that maybe we could all take away to try and move towards more states of flow? So... 
Uh, yes, and so we'll, we'll, I'll talk through some some of these triggers in a little more detail. But the I, a caveat has to come on the front end of this. Yeah. Um, which is this? I always tell people this. I don't. Nothing. I, I I don't. I'm not interested in technologies. I'm not interested in substances. Um, I don't do whiz bang stuff. I stuff. I like stuff that is reliable and repeatable. Works everywhere. Works for everyone in any situation. Mm. If that's what you're looking for, you're looking for physiology and psychology. Yeah. Right. The bad news is everything I'm about to talk about. None of it's sexy. If you go talk about it at a bar on Friday night, I can guarantee you're not going to get laid. It's not sexy. <laughs> it's not. Right. That and that's and the reason I mention all this I like not is, sexy. It's good. It's that I mean it's it's a problem for people, right? It's like they want the whiz bang, and when they don't get the whiz bang, they don't think it's going to work, so they don't play with it. So, you know, well, that's that's I'll, life, isn't it? I mean, everyone wants the sexy, and, and no one wants the the not sexy. But it's the not sexy that makes life. Exactly. So I'll give you. Uh, let me. Uh, Let's just talk about the triggers we were talking about. Uh, well, let's actually start. The most, uh, the most, the, the biggest one we should talk about is um, what's often called the golden rule of flow. The most important of flow's triggers. It's what's known as the challenge skills balance. Hmm. So the idea, remember, flow follows focus, and all the triggers drive our attention into the now. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill set. So when you have to stretch, right. push on your sort of to the, the utmost, comfort zone, you're outside your comfort zone, right? right? You're a little outside your comfort zone. That's when focus is absolutely maximized. That's the sweet spot for flow. So this is sort of near, but not on the midpoint between boredom and anxiety. Boredom mm. is, this is boring. I'm not paying any attention here. Anxiety is, whoa, way too much stimulation. I'm paying too much attention. In between is what's known as the flow channel. So what is tricky about this is a bunch of years ago, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the godfather of flow psychology, teamed up with a Google mathematician that tried to put a number on the what is the percentage difference between challenge and skills. And they did a back-of-the-envelope calculation, came up with a 4% difference, meaning we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task is 4% greater than the skills we bring to it. Now, that was a they, they didn't think that was a real number. They thought it was a metaphor. We took that yeah. number and, and studied it on and off for about five years. And what, what I can tell you is it's really hard to prove. It's really hard to study. It's really hard to test. We think it's a, we think it's a damn accurate metaphor right. is, is all I can tell you. And but the reason I wanted to tell you that is four percent is kind of interesting because if you're shy, meek, timid, not really a hard charger, that kind of wiring. 4% is tricky because as you mentioned, it's outside your comfort zone. So you mm. have to get really comfortable with being uncomfortable to do this work. Yeah, For I like that. The other side of the coin. Only 4%, 4%, I mean, it doesn't sound too much. Well, that's the problem for most people. So the bigger problem is, is on the other side of this, most people are hard chargers these days and really go hard and 4% is too small. And hard chargers will bite off challenges that are 10%, 20%, 30% greater than their skills simply because it excites them because it's interesting and it's cool, right? And what the science shows is, first of all, you want those. Those are called high hard goals or high hard challenges. Yep. They're phenomenal for motivation. Simply setting a proper high hard goal can give you an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. So fantastic tool for increasing motivation. 
what flow studies show is great. Set those big goals, but make sure that what you're doing right here, right now, it's just 4% greater. So take the big goal and chunk it down. So the task that's actually in front of you is only 4% greater, 5% greater, that sort Mm, of thing. That makes sense. I imagine those big audacious leaps are are probably not as longer lasting. You know, they can lead to burnout and, and failure and give up and all that sort of thing. The biggest problem is we talked a lot about norepinephrine earlier. The Mm. biggest problem is you want a little bit of norepinephrine in the brain to produce flow too much and you're producing anxiety. So the reason those big goals are are so tricky, there's a bunch of different reasons. Mm. One of them is they just produce too much anxiety. They knock you out of that challenge skills sweet spot. Yeah. You yeah, out. I'm here. Yep, gotcha. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was waiting sorry. for you to ask another question. <laughs> I realize we've got time constraints too, mate. So, yeah, I've got about nine minutes for you. Cool, cool. So, neuroepinephrine, we were talking there. Oh, I said, yeah, you, you just you, a little bit is great, too much, too much, and you're Anxiety. out of the spot. Yeah, okay, yeah. To maximize flow, you want to stay in the center. Gotcha, gotcha. We've got a terrible line here, Stephen. It's it's starting to break up fairly fairly bad. But you got me. Yeah, I, I can hear you fine. Mate, I know there's a lot to break down um, with this topic, and I, I guess uh, maybe it encourages a round two sometime. But certainly, I want to you know just let people know that you've got that the website there. Uh, flow research collective that you can go to so flow re- uh, sorry flow search collective.com is the website where people can learn more about it and um, you know read more about your research there uh, I can also take it one step farther for folks uh, if you go to www.flowblocker.com flow blocker.com okay. there are uh, we uh, there are about six major Flow blockers, things that will, you know, knock you out of flow or keep you keep you out in the anyways. And we built a diagnostic. And so anybody can take it and um, you just throw your email in there, take the take the diagnostic and we'll email you back results and and a, and a really detailed action plan on, on how to tackle that. So that's for anybody in the the last thing that you know, it's one last thing that's worth mentioning. Flow is part of peak performance there's obviously a whole lot more going on flow is one really it's one quarter of the picture in a sense Hmm. but um the re my most recent book there's a lot of different books we started with the fact that rise of superman i think is my favorite but the art of impossible the new book is the first time i've done uh it's a how-to primer based on all the neuroscience all the work we've done at the flow search collective over the years and and it's and it looks at flow all the flow hacking stuff and all the other components of peak human performance. Uh, and it's it's literally an A to Z playbook on, on peak human performance that anybody can use. Can you get box game. sets of your books, Stephen? Not yet. Um, ah. which is in, it's because I've, I've switched. I have under, I have three different publishers. I, you know, I right. have fiction. I have one, when I, when I write fiction, I'm with one person. When I write on technology, uh, I'm with a different house, and when I write about peak human performance, I'm with a different house. Yeah. And 
you know, so there's no, there's, there's nothing's unified. Yeah. Um, but we, people have, we've been talking about it, trying to figure out how to do it because a lot of people have asked. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. The, uh, one of my favorites of yours was stealing fire with Jamie. You wrote, um, <laughs> just fascinating, fascinating work, but look, there's a lot there, a lot to be explored. So guys, um, check it out. Flow search com, And the other one, Stephen was flowblocker.com. Is that right? And okay. if you want more about me, it's stephencotler.com. And Stephen, I'll stick the links in the show notes. This is episode 1000. Stephen, um, oh, I really appreciate your time and you've made the, uh, the the thousand mark for me too. So that's just awesome. Well, congratulations on a thousand. That's good work. That is good work. Nicely done. The passion. The passion drives me. And I get to interview rad people like yourself. Um, it's a good job. <laughs> it is a good job. Stephen, uh, apologies for the, the poor connection we've had too and for the audience listening. Look, it's a little bit crackly, but we've had some gold today, so enjoy it at thehiddenwide.com. And until next time, peace and passion. And See you Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwhy.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there. And also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee martin Utsi. until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon